it's exactly the story of the musical supervisor at First Wives Club. She she had she had no idea of my skill set. She only knew that in our time together, I was kind. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Voracious Student and your podcast classroom. I'm your host, Denis Lambert. And each week, I'll be bringing on a new guest teacher to discuss life and the arts. David W. Connolly is my guest today. David is a director, educator, and advocate, and he's also a fellow Canadian. He is the Associate Artistic Director of Drayton Entertainment, where he has helmed over 30 productions, and he has done a ton of directing and choreographing all across Canada and on TV, as well as the First Wives Club in Chicago, which we talk a little bit about. David is also a passionate educator with a ton of experience, including a lot of work with Sheridan College in Canada, as well as being the creator and operator of Connolly Coaching. And David is a proud advocate, deeply committed to matters concerning disability inclusion in the arts. David happens to be a double below knee amputee. He is the only amputee to ever have performed on Broadway, and he is an ambassador for the Shriners Hospital for Children and has volunteered with a huge number of wonderful organizations. As he says in the episode, Disability inclusion really is the last frontier of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and it's a big part of his current focus in life. So we chat about that, we chat about teaching, we chat about the importance of kindness and how different generations can help each other. I love and appreciate David's heart. It's clear he appreciates other people and his chosen field so much. It was a joy to talk to him, and I hope you enjoy this episode. David, welcome. Thank you. So let's dive in. There is this fantastic video on your website where you talk about being present. So I'd love to start there. Why is it hard to be present? Why is it so important to be present? And what does training in theater have to do with being present? Well, I think an actor's goal is to be present is to have the experience for the first time to have the audience believe that you've never heard those words before. And that's only possible if I think if you're being present to um, the energy of whatever the reality of that situation is. And that takes a lot of imagination. It takes a lot of imagination to be in a world where um, we understand that words aren't literal and that it's only kind of the emotion behind those words that people are doing their best to come up with that, that we're reacting to in life. So we have to do our best to mirror that on stage, which means that the, the presence is not only to what that person's saying, but more importantly to how that person is feeling and then how you respond to that feeling through the words of the author. Right. Um, but the, the, the words are only a vehicle to, to respond to a feeling. And then, if that's done well, then the audience gets to share in those feelings, not necessarily the words, which doesn't mean I don't value words. <laughs> I think, you know, there's no greater fan of words. Um, but I think that's 
that's what happens is once those actors are, are acutely aware of, whoa, and usually the exciting parts are when it's surprising, right? So it's like, oh, where'd that, wait, what? Wait, what? Oh, that made me feel, wait, this, whoa. And then the audience gets to transcend their email box, right? Their inbox and whatever happened to them at intermission and, and start to be in the dance of, whoa, oh, wait, wait. Right. Even if it's a show you've seen a thousand times, you still want to get lost in that cycle of, um, of wait, what? So, so is it difficult? Yes, because the actors are going through things too. Right. But we're there in service to the audience. And so we need to do everything we can to leave whatever's going on for us. It's obviously going to influence the work, hopefully, because we don't want to compartmentalize, but, um, but that, that we need tools to be able to be like, okay, and it's breath. I mean, like, spoiler breath alert. Breath is everything. Breath is everything, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So you just gotta, you just gotta come up with whatever tools work for you to connect to that breath that's going to share breath with that other person you're breathing with. As a fellow educator, Talk to me a little bit about your breath when you're teaching. Do you find you come up against moments where I don't know if I should go this way or that way and any sort of challenge that comes up when, when working with people, how is, how is your breath factor into that? Yeah. Well, I just have to do my best to remember that I'm there to serve whoever I'm with whether I'm teaching or directing, whatever I'm doing, I'm there to serve where they're at, meet them where they're at. And some people innately, you know, just kind of um, naturally enter with open hearts and open minds and open to, yeah, let's, let's dive in. Let's play. Let's just figure this out. And, and other people are just coming in with a little more armor um, against uh, feeling you know, things they don't want to feel or don't want to express. And so as a teacher, it's just coming up with an x-ray lens of what's going on with you today. Like what's, what's up with you and, and, and being really deeply respectful of whatever that is and knowing when to, um, you know, just faith, I guess comes up for me, like a faith that like, that that person is going to um, respond to the invitation um, or not, and if they're not ready today or this moment, then then we've done our best, and we'll try again. <laughs> you know. Yeah. What's your favorite thing about teaching, David? <sighs> well, I'm old, <laughs> so um, Deepak. Chopra says that the uh, first 25 years are for education of your life. The next 25 years are for fame and fortune. The third 25 years are to give back. And then the next 25 years are to transcend, um, to be enlightened in some way. And so I'm in the give back years and I want to impact uh, the first 25 years especially, you know, impact whenever, whoever I can. Um, but 
to have any to have an influence on those formative years, especially for people who don't see the arts as a viable career or a viable path to like actually make that a um, their mission, right? Their cause. Um, I want to impact as many of them as they can and, and uh, with a particular focus on people who don't feel like they belong there right now. So let's talk about dance. <laughs> when did dance first come into your life and what role has it played in your life? Oh, I, um, I wanted to be in the musical in high school because I knew that those were my people like that, that I didn't really feel like I fit anywhere else. And so, uh, I just kind of in grade nine, you fall into the chorus. Um, and so I just quickly had to figure that out. And then as soon as they saw a boy that was interested in dance, then like, you know, that it was just, the idea was supported. There was a dance studio that was offering, um, free classes to boys just to get boys into their new studio. And that rolled into, um, grade 10 when they were doing anything goes and they said, well, sorry, this year, everybody has to tap dance. So I had to go home to my mother and say, mom, I need tap shoes. And she didn't fall over luckily. So, um, that that's how it started it was just a um, a love of that community of just finding my place in that community and and um, you know today it's it's mostly you know it's in relationship to musical theater my my love of dance but when you know as they say when you can't speak any longer and the emotion is too high you have to sing and then the emotion is too high and you have to dance like when that's done well when that's like crafted well in a musical and like the stage bursts into a dance break like that's nothing better better than that yeah so you are the first and only amputee to have ever performed on broadway Mm. let me ask you how do you feel about being the first and also how would you feel if that list were longer (laughs) <laughs> and maybe how do we make that list longer? If I can throw in a, a third question. Sure. Yes. Well, it's, it's a very big part of my focus at this you know stage of my life. I don't, I don't want that statistic. That, that is a label that I have no interest in holding. Um, uh, so how do I feel about it? Well, it links to representation. It links to who thinks they belong there. It links to who, is invited to the party right now, you know, the (sighs) Ali Stroker, um, three cheers for Ali Stroker. It's, it's, um, just mind blowing though, that she's the first, right? Like it's mind blowing. And which is not to take anything away from that incredible achievement, but we all know the story that she couldn't go into the audience at the Tonys, right? Like they didn't have any access for her to get from the audience up onto the stage. And so she had to wait for her award backstage and then, you know, wheeled out from there. And so there is work to be done. And yes, that is great. And yes, there are kids in wheelchairs who see that and they're like, Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. But if there's only one, then the, the, you know, if there's only one amputee to have been, in a Broadway musical, then why would 
but this this is a larger conversation, right? It, I, I, my my intersection is disability, but this goes for all minorities. Anybody who's um, underrepresented, marginalized, I guess, is a hot topic. Mm-hmm. Or, um, but it's it'll take time, you know. And the optimist in me says, yes, there's absolutely forward movement. And building on that, you got to host what I believe was the first ever disability inclusion panel at Broadway Con last year. Is that right? That's right. How did that come about? And what was that experience like? <laughs> um, it, I went to Broadway Con for the first time three years ago. I just happened to be in the city and I was flipping through the thing. I'm like, oh, there's a Broadway convention. Great. And so I went and it was, you know, wonderful. There's kind of two arms of it. There's a performance arm where you get to see, you know, the musicals coming up next year and you get to meet all these fancy Broadway stars and all that. And then there's an education arm where they have uh, clinics and panels to learn everything you want to know about Broadway. And um, so I went to a day of that and then they sent me a survey afterwards and they were like, let us know how you like, they sent to everyone, how you liked Broadway Con. And I said, it was wonderful. Um, there was, there was no panel during that convention about disability. And so that would be my only, you know, reflection. And so they wrote back and they were like, great idea. Do that. Like, do you want to do it? <laughs> yeah. I was like, um, but I, did, I, that's not, oh, um, but that's usually, you know, that fear is usually what uh, propels change. Right. So I was like, oh, okay. And then I just started writing people, you know, that I respected and, and thought had an interesting, uh, varied perspective because the onus for change is shared. It's not just, you know, it, 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 it's, it's on that panel, for instance, I had um, uh, the head of a post-secondary education um, institution because onus is there to be radical about um, marketing and radical about soliciting people who aren't represented right now, because when the opportunities come, the people need to be prepared. <laughs> Like we need, we need a deeper well of, of actors, technicians, designers, producers who are uh, disabled so that um, as this, as, as our reality is shifting, that we have a really deep um, list, long list. And so we had uh, that, uh, we had a producer, a Broadway producer to talk about like, okay, this is a monetary thing. Like all change, it's going to take money. So who's willing to pay, you know, to make the concessions uh, that they had to make for Ali's theater for Oklahoma. Like they had to pay money to, to allow her wheelchair access to backstage. Um, and they did. So bravo. Um, let's continue that trend. Uh, let's make sure it's not just a, you know, moment in time. So producer, there was a casting agent on that panel um, because that is a very large part of the, again, onus of change is, is, um, here's the thing. (laughs) It'll be great when disabled people are playing disabled people, right? Like that'll be great. The goal is for disabled people to play non-disabled roles. That's our goal. The goal is to just have someone 
that has nothing to say in the script about the fact that they're blind or deaf or neurodiverse or, you know, whatever's going on, like the, the, the depth and the richness of the experience of seeing someone navigate life differently than you do is what theater should be. And that to bring up Ali again, that's part of, at least for me, what made that so extraordinary because there was nothing in the script and it made perfect sense and was just so unique and wonderful and unexpected. So wonderful. So wonderful. And, and, and we're there to provoke thought. We're there to provoke conversations in the car on the way home. You know, that's, I think what good theater is to last a long time. I remember that exactly what you're talking about, how she was like highly sexualized and like, like highly, you know, um, I mean, in a really positive way, of course, like, like that, that she had a sexual life and, and that no one talked about it. It was just, she was part of the community and, and, um, think of the people who saw that show that, you know, the disabled people who saw that, I just know, cause there's no way it didn't happen that there were people there were disabled people who saw that show that decided to enter the performing arts as um, either a vocation or as a, a you know, um, their, their education stream. So um, it's so exciting. So you can actually see that panel on YouTube listeners. So I will put a link and I would like to shamelessly steal a question you asked the panelists and ask you something you asked them. So where do you feel the prioritized responsibility lies in improving disabled representation? Like if you could magically change one specific area and like just focus all of your energy there, what would it be? I think it's I think it's with the new generation. I, you know, again, it's shared, but I think that we need to create spaces um generational change will come through the new generation feeling like they belong and for everyone involved to do to go out of their way to inconvenience themselves to make sure that whatever accommodations need to be made are made including like this is a gamut right this is not just disability that's my intersection as i said but this is including um all everything gender expression um body shape and size color of your skin creed religion all of it all of it need the doors need to fly open um and not just to assimilate not just to assimilate into this culture that exists but to really impact it through their lived experience and conversations about how we can change the canon, I mean, that's a whole podcast in itself, but like, right. That, that we need to, to, um, really, uh, learn, learn and accept these different ways and modalities and thoughts and, and traditions and cultures and, and have that start to infuse the storytelling and create new stories, obviously, but it's not going to come from, it's, it, it, it you know, it's not going to come I don't think it's going to come as uh, quickly from my generation as it is from uh, allowing space for those minds to um, to flourish. But do you feel like they're on it? Do you feel like change is happening in the younger generation? I feel like 
such a good question. I feel yes is, is the short answer, but they need us. They need us. They need us. They, they, they are reacting right now. I feel like it's a reactive generation that's kind of just coming out fists up and like, no, we will. And, you know, they're in marches, which is great, but like we need to support after the march. We need to support them and hold them and, and create um, conversations with elders about what that march meant and why they were there and what they can do to, you know, whatever self-care they need to feel um, that they're not alone. So yes, and like, yes, there's a lot of energy. Um, they have a global communication tool that no one other, other generation has had. I just don't know whether they've been trained very well or that we've created a bed for them to fall back in when they're tired. <laughs> you know, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. There's a difference between expression and action and that, they need the support of people who can actually make some fundamental changes happen. I do think it's easy to feel like, like expressing is actually changing something, you know, but maybe the people that really need to hear it are not even listening or aware. Like they might not even be on that platform that you're screaming so loud on, you know? And so it's a big, yeah, it's a big, it's a big conversation, but I thought that's a great answer. So this is a time of big transitions for a lot of people. So I'd love to ask you about a transition you made in your career a while back. When you went from being a performer to a director and choreographer, was that easy? Was it clear? And if someone was looking to do the same thing, what advice would you give them? If I'm to tell the absolute truth, I, I was in the hands of some extraordinary mentors, extraordinary male director choreographers and so it it didn't seem like it just felt like a really um feasible path like it felt like oh that like great i can that's a possibility so it, it was it was always a possibility to me but then i fell into the hands of some not so great creatives and I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? I thought everyone was, you know, benevolent and kind and um, uh, accepting and collaborative and all of the good things, you know. Um, uh, but then then I was in a, in a few situations where I was like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> no, this is not how we lead. This is not. I, I, so, so that gently led, it wasn't like a huge, like, you know, moment where I denied all performing, you know, I, I just started to gently like be like, oh, okay, I've been lucky to, to know kind of how this goes. So I'm going to start with choreography. I started there. Um, and, and, you know, I'm very grateful to the people who said, sure, like try it. But, but, you know, that said, if you're asking for me to give advice, I did it for free. Just let me choreograph this thing. I'm going to do it on spec. You're going to love it or hate it. If you hate it, you just get somebody else and no harm, no foul. And I did that a few times. I, I, I just offered my services and um, because it is an apprenticeship. And so many people these days are not honoring or respectful of that fact. They want to leap straight to... Um, they want to leapfrog the growth that comes from assisting 
you know, and volunteering and like, Hey, there's a charity thing thing. Yep. I'm going to choreograph the charity thing thing. Cause then I'm going to meet the stage manager. Who's going to be like, it's, it's, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, but, um, uh, you know, it is about relationships and it, and those relationships are only formed through the apprenticeship of creating a network of people that you get to, um, that will be with you for the rest of your life. I, the, I did the first wives club at the Chicago and the musical supervisor of that is how I got that gig. Um, she was involved and in, they were doing a workshop in Toronto just two weeks and they just wanted to like um, stage two numbers. And they were like, so listen, you're not going to choreograph this show because you're not famous, but we're in Toronto and we need a couple numbers so that backers can see the same thing. Um, And so that's what happened. I went in to do a couple numbers and two numbers turned into six numbers and six numbers turned into an offer at the end of those two weeks to come do the pre-Broadway, whatever. But point of the story is that the musical supervisor I hadn't worked with for 20 years. I did one gig with her, one in 1995. And she remembered that I lived in Toronto and found me and was like, do you still live in Toronto? That's that's a great story. And I feel like there are so many great stories like that. And as you start to get older, like you see them and you hear them and you know them. So if you are on the younger side listening, like I remember one of my first teachers in New York told a story about how he got a gig from someone who played an audition for him 15 years ago. Like he called him out of the blue and was like, I want to hire you for this and that. And he says, how do you even know me? Well, you auditioned for this. I didn't get that job. You weren't on that team. No, I played your audition. You just never know. You never know. And something else you brought up that I've been dealing with this year because I've been getting into voiceover and audiobooks and this sort of whole other career was that by like spending a little bit of money or losing a little bit of money for a while, you can then maybe jump eight steps. You know, like if you want to invest in like a really good demo or a really good reel, then you might be taken seriously for like a really great job. But I feel like there's so many people and sometimes maybe it's the parents' voices or whatever saying, I'm not doing this until I get paid or until I'm the lead or until I'm actually choreographing and not assisting, they won't do it. But like, I, there are major choreographers you can just like reach out to and say, can I assist? And they'll probably say yes, you know? And anyway, so yeah, and now I'm preaching to the choir, but um, I think it's an important thing to get home because I also think that the younger generation, which and I say this with love, they feel uh, everything's like right now, you know, and they have skills that I crave and I'm envious of, but I do feel like there's something in playing the long game. And it is called Instagram. And there's nothing Insta about good work or building a a foundation or a reputation, you know? Well, I think the thing that I like to remind people is that when the time does come for you to step and be in charge of the room, like to be the, the funnel through which decisions are made. If you don't have roots in being in rooms that taught you how to deal with not the things on paper, but the surprises then the tree will uproot and you will fall over and it will 
not be pleasant for you or anyone else. But the more rooms you can be in, and as you say, not only to assist, but just sit in a corner. Like, I just, can I be the coffee boy and like intern this? I don't know how, I didn't know how a big musical was made until I assisted on a big musical. And then when it was my time to do a big musical, I had a whole bunch of do's and don'ts in my head about how to navigate that space. And so um, I love that this topic came up. I do too. And I think no matter where you are in the room, I think until you do a big musical, for example, you really don't know how many things go wrong and for how long it feels like it will never come together. And so you need to be, have gone through that experience once to keep your cool and not be the person who's like, oh, this is never going to happen or we're doomed. And, you know, there's no way to learn that except you can even be told that, but until your body has been through it. And said, "Oh wow, we 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 somehow opened and nobody died." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let alone a new musical, let alone oh. a, a big new musical. That's a whole different piece. That's that is a definitely another podcast. Yeah, uh, you brought up kindness before, and that's something you've also talked about a lot. Why is kindness so important to you? It's exactly the story of the musical supervisor at First Wives Club. She she had she had no idea of my skill set. She only knew that in our time together, I was kind. And she knew that the, 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 the project needed kindness. Kindness to me is empathy. It is, it is to understand that, um, to constantly remind ourselves that people are going through things that we don't know about. And while, um, things need to get done. It's just my 100% of the time experience that when they're done through a lens of, you know what, today's not the day. <laughs> today's not the day. We're going to leave that alone today. And we're going to move on to this because that this group of people are ready for the thing. And, and so I think it's, um, it, it can't be taught. It can only be modeled. I think. And so the more people I get to have that conversation with college kids are, are a really good target for this, um, that they won't remember what you did or what you said. They'll just remember how you made them feel. And so there's a difference between sitting in a rehearsal hall on your phone and sitting in a rehearsal hall, giving energy to the people who are creating and it may look like the creatives aren't paying attention to that, which is not to say if you have something to do, don't leave, you know, go check your phone, go do your thing, but don't do it in the room. Don't do it in the room. It's just one tiny small example of how we can just uh, be, again, serve, like serve that audience. We're there to serve the audience, to change the world. Let's not lose sight of that ever. But do you, th do you think by modeling it, people can become more kind? If it can't be taught, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always interested on this podcast. So much is about how do we learn and can we learn? And, um, but can people become more kind? Do you see people become more kind? Yes. 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 Unequivocally, yes. Because when I speak with, you know, during the pandemic, I've got to chat with some really great mentor, Broadway, you know, stars. Um, and what drew me to even wanting to talk with them was just an intuition of like, you know what? They're kind. 
their work has kindness in it, which is what made them so successful. It's quick math. You know, there are a few, I would say, um, anomalies, right? Like there are a couple examples of maybe some people who have risen to whatever that means um, with an ego, but everybody I talk to, you know, you, you need pride to do what you do and be the last one to bow. There needs to be pride in the, what got you there, but there can be no ego for you to have a sustaining career is what I learned in the last year. I love that. Tell me a little bit more about exactly what that project was for, or tell the listeners rather. Sure. I, I know what, I know of what you're speaking and it's similar to what I've done this last year with this podcast. So tell me, tell me a little, just a little bit more about it. Yeah. So I, you know, isolation, boom, we were like, whoosh. And I spent a couple of weeks completely lost. And then I was like, Oh no, 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 no. What a great opportunity. Everybody's at home, you know, every, and so I started an Instagram live, uh, having no idea what it was or how to do it at, you know, to start, um, an Instagram live. Is this on? Exactly. That's what I would say. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I just started to reach out to people to have chats about, um, 45 minute chats, just about, uh, different topics, which like you, you know, that always kind of veer into magic, um, even after best laid plans. So, um, and then that dovetailed into an actors fund series. So actors fund of Canada, I was like, yeah, this is great, but we should, they need money. <laughs> so let's raise some money. And so then I started to talk to people like, you know, Stephanie J block and Sergio and, it was like a Tony award winner series um, that kind of elevated out of the Instagram into a, a zoom thing that people paid what they could to um, come learn from these minds and hearts. And um, it, it, it just was remarkable how open that community was, how open they were to be like, yeah, of course. Like I, I think I'm allowed to say this. I Instagram Stephanie J block. Like I just sent her a DM. I was like, listen, <laughs> We, I would love, and you know, she responded. So, um, anyway, it's, it's an incredible community. It just really is. I don't know other communities as well as this one, but I am so proud to be a part of it. And so proud to, um, to open the doors to, you know, we're doing some online teaching, some online classes and, and there's no, logic or reason to why people are compelled to be obsessed with musical theater. There's just no, there's no science behind what their influence is because there's, you know, there's, a, there's an angel story, oh, my albums and my family and my, but there's also more examples of like, why do you know all the words to Hamilton? Like you're in this basement of a one stoplight town with cows, like you have cows on your farm. And like, because we're online, I get to see into their bedroom. I'm like, your bedroom is filled with show posters and you know, all the words to Hamilton. Why? Like, why you? Is your family? No, my family hates musicals. Okay. All right. Then you're, then you hold on tight because you're now our responsibility to continue to fan that flame and continue to 
you know, have you realized that you are in an incredible network of people who, again, for reasons unknown, are drawn to this form of um, healing? That's so interesting. And I mean, I relate completely because I mean, I was a kid with, you know, the entire wall was plastered with playbills and I forced the neighborhood kids to do Les Mis in the basement directed by me. Um, Were you in it too? Oh, of course. Yeah. But then I would also step out. I think I was Javert. I mean, my my parents still talk about the master of the house scene because we had all these like empty liquor bottles and wine bottles. And so I had all these like seven-year-old kids like cheering. Cheers to you. Yes. But I mean, do you have any guesses? Do you have any guesses as to why someone or anyone becomes obsessed? I mean, what is it about this particular form? And also, actually, I'm going to ask you another question, if that's all right. Because as someone obsessed and having done this for a while, like the cynic in me during this pandemic kind of looked at people entering musical theater college, you know, call or trying to get into college for musical theater. I was like, I don't even know if I'd want to do it with this world. So I'm curious about and inspired by these young people who are choosing to do this with their life like I did when I was their age with such a less clear um, landscape out there and no promises of when exactly they'll get to be on stage. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that somewhere on the realm of conscious and unconscious, there is a knowing of the healing power of the art form. Sometimes less is more. Less is more. Um, I have an instinct that that's a perfect place to stop. I think we just reached the top of Mount Everest, in my opinion. But is there anything else you want to say? Oh my goodness! Oh, thank you. I just want to say thank you. It's what such a joy. It's just a joy to. Um, every one of these conversations creates the change. You know, it is is truly one conversation at a time. It's not. I've learned um, some monumental like happening or a monumental choice or, you know, those help too, but the, the true grassroots of change come from these conversations and people willing to listen and hopefully have a further conversation about, I heard this podcast and, you know, and, and hopefully um, in regards to disabled inclusion, people will start to uh, all get, on board with what they're calling the last frontier of equity, diversity, and inclusion. So I'm just thrilled to be here. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. David's spirit just is so alive and incredible. I I, I love talking with him. And the end, when he was talking about the sense that some people can just feel that musical theater is exactly the kind of healing they need, uh, I loved, and it surprised me. Healing can (laughs) maybe be a word that scares some people, uh, especially in terms of choosing a career. But I related, and uh, yeah, it was a surprise to me. And I'm always hoping for that, that there's something in the conversation that surprises me. What he had to say as well about the goal being for disabled people to play non-disabled roles, not just disabled roles, was a huge takeaway for me. Thank you so much again to David for coming on the show, for sharing so generously 
His website will be in the show notes, as well as his Instagram and that YouTube video I mentioned. I'll have another episode for you in two weeks. In case you didn't hear my last episode with K. Jenny Jones, we've switched to a bi-weekly schedule. So we'll have episodes out for you every two weeks. Stay safe, take care of each other, and I'll talk to you soon.